Chapters 40, 41, and 42 of The Mirror of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mirror of the Sea by Joseph Conrad. The Tremolino, Chapter 40. It was written that there, in the nursery of our navigating ancestors, I should learn to walk in the ways of my craft, and grow in the love of the sea, blind as young love often is, but absorbing and disinterested as all true love must be. I demanded nothing from it, not even adventure. In this I showed, perhaps, more intuitive wisdom than high self-denial. No adventure ever came to one for the asking. He who starts on a deliberate quest of adventure goes forth but to gather dead sea fruit, unless, indeed, he be beloved of the gods and great amongst heroes, like that most excellent cavalier Don Quixote de la Mancha. By us ordinary mortals, of a mediocre animus that is only too anxious to pass by wicked giants for so many honest windmills, adventures are entertained like visiting angels. They come upon our complacency unawares. As unbidden guests are apt to do, they often come at inconvenient times, and we are glad to let them go unrecognized without any acknowledgment of so high a favor. After many years, on looking back from the middle turn of life's way at the events of the past, which, like a friendly crowd, seemed to gaze sadly after us hastening towards the Cimmerian shore, we may see here and there, in the grey throng, some figure glowing with a faint radiance, as though it had caught all the light of our already crepuscular sky and by this glow we may recognize the faces of our true adventures of the once unbidden guests entertained unawares in our young days. In the Mediterranean the venerable, and sometimes atrociously ill-tempered, nurse of all navigators was to rock my youth. The providing of the cradle necessary for that operation was entrusted by fate to the most casual assemblage of irresponsible young men, all, however, older than myself, that, as if drunk with Provencal sunshine, fritted life away in joyous levity on the model of Balzac's Histoire des Tres, qualified by a dash of romance de cap and de pay. She who was my cradle in those years had been built on the river of Savona by a famous builder of boats, was rigged in Corsica by another good man, and was described on her papers as a tartan of sixty tons. In reality she was a true balancelle, with two short masts raking forward and two curved yards, each as long as her hull. A true child of the Latin lake, with a spread of two enormous sails resembling the pointed wings on a seabird's slender body, and herself, like a bird indeed, skimming rather than sailing the seas. 
Her name was the Tremolino. How is this to be translated? The Quiverer? What a name to give the pluckiest little craft that ever dipped her sides in angry foam. I had felt her, it is true, trembling for nights and days together under my feet, but it was with the high-strung tenseness of her faithful courage. In her short but brilliant career she has taught me nothing, but she has given me everything. I owe to her the awakened love for the sea that with the quivering of her swift little body and the humming of the wind under the foot of her latine sails stole into my heart with a sort of gentle violence and brought my imagination under its despotic sway. The Tremolino. To this day I cannot utter or even write that name without a strange tightening of the breast and the gasp of mingled delight and dread of one's first passionate experience. Chapter 41 We four formed, to use a term well understood nowadays in every social sphere, a syndicate owning the Tremolino, an international and astonishing syndicate and we were all ardent royalists of the snow-white legitimist complexion. Heaven only knows why. In all associations of men there is generally one who, by the authority of age and of a more experienced wisdom, imparts a collective character to the whole set. If I mention that the oldest of us was very old, extremely old, nearly thirty years old, and that he used to declare with gallant carelessness, I live by my sword, I think I have given enough information on the score of our collective wisdom. He was a North Carolinian gentleman. J. M. K. B. were the initials of his name, and he really did live by the sword, as far as I know. He died by it, too, later on in a balkanian squabble in the cause of some serbs or else bulgarians who were neither catholics nor gentlemen at least not in the exalted but narrow sense he attached to that last word poor j m k b american catholique et gentilhomme as he was disposed to describe himself in moments of lofty expansion are there still to be found in Europe gentlemen keen of face and elegantly slight of body, of distinguished aspect, with a fascinating drawing-room manner, and with a dark fatal glance, who live by their swords, I wonder? His family had been ruined in the Civil War, I fancy, and seems for a decade or so to have led a wandering life in the old world. As to Henry C., the next in age and wisdom of our band, he had broken loose from the unyielding rigidity of his family, solidly rooted, if I remember rightly, in a well-to-do London suburb. On their respectable authority he introduced himself meekly to strangers as a black sheep. I have never seen a more guileless specimen of an outcast. Never. However, his people had the grace to send him a little money now and then. 
enamoured of the south of provence of its people its life its sunshine and its poetry narrow-chested tall and short-sighted he strode along the streets and the lanes his long feet projecting far in advance of his body and his white nose and gingery moustache buried in an open book for he had the habit of reading as he walked how he avoided falling into precipices off the quays or down staircases is a great mystery the sides of his overcoat bulged out with pocket editions of various poets. When not engaged in reading Virgil, Homer, or Mistral in parks, restaurants, streets, and such-like public places, he indicted sonnets in French to the eyes, ears, chin, hair, and other visible perfections of a nymph called Therese, the daughter honesty compels me to state of a certain madame leonore who kept a small cafe for sailors in one of the narrowest streets of the old town no more charming face clear-cut like an antique gem and delicate in colouring like the petal of a flower had ever been set on alas a somewhat squat body he read his verses aloud to her in the very café with the innocence of a little child and the vanity of a poet. We followed him there willingly enough, if only to watch the divine Therese laugh, under the vigilant black eyes of Madame Leonore, her mother. She laughed very prettily, not so much at the sonnets, which she could not but esteem, as at poor Henry's French accent, which was unique, resembling the warbling of birds, if birds ever warbled with a stuttering nasal intonation. Our third partner was Roger P. de la S., the most Scandinavian-looking of Provençal squires, fair and six feet high, as became a descendant of sea-roving northmen, authoritative, incisive, wittily scornful, with a comedy in three acts in his breast-pocket, and in his breast a heart blighted by a hopeless passion for his beautiful cousin, married to a wealthy hide-and-tallow merchant. He used to take us to lunch at their house without ceremony. I admired the good lady's sweet patience. The husband was a conciliatory soul with a great fund of resignation which he expended on Roger's friends. I suspect he was secretly horrified at these invasions, but it was a carlist salon, and as such we were made welcome the possibility of raising Catalonia in the interests of the Rey Neto, who had just then crossed the Pyrenees, was much discussed there. Don Carlos, no doubt, must have had many queer friends, it is the common lot of all pretenders, but amongst them none more extravagantly fantastic than the Tremolino Syndicate which used to meet in a tavern on the quays of the old port. 
the antique city of massilia had surely never since the days of the earliest phoenicians known an otter set of ship owners we met to discuss and settle the plan of operations for each voyage of the tremolino in these operations a banking-house too was concerned a very respectable banking-house but i am afraid i shall end by saying too much ladies too were concerned i am really afraid i am saying too much all sorts of ladies some old enough to know better than to put their trust in princes others young and full of illusions one of these last was extremely amusing in the imitations she gave us in confidence of various highly placed personages she was perpetually rushing off to paris to interview in the interests of the cause poor el rey for she was a carlist and of basque blood at that with something of a lioness in the expression of her courageous face especially when she let her hair down and with the volatile little soul of a sparrow dressed in fine parisian feathers which had the trick of coming off disconcertingly at unexpected moments but her imitations of a parisian personage very highly placed indeed as she represented him standing in the corner of a room with his face to the wall rubbing the back of his head and moaning helplessly rita you are the death of me were enough to make one if young and free from cares split one's sides laughing she had an uncle still living a very effective carless too the priest of a little mountain parish in guipuzcoa as the sea-going member of the syndicate whose plans depended greatly on dona rita's information i used to be charged with humbly affectionate messages for the old man these messages i was supposed to deliver to the aragonese muleteers who were sure to await at certain times the tremolino in the neighbourhood of the gulf of rosas for faithful transportation inland together with the various unlawful goods landed secretly from under the tremolino's hatches well now i have really let out too much as i feared i should in the end as to the usual contents of my sea cradle but let it stand and if anybody remarks cynically that i must have been a promising infant in those days let that stand too i am concerned but for the good name of the tremolino and i affirm that a ship is ever guiltless of the sins transgressions and follies of her men chapter forty two it was not tremolino's fault that the syndicate depended so much on the wit and wisdom and the information of dona rita she had taken a little furnished house on the prado for the good of the cause poor el rey she was always taking little houses for somebody's good for the sick or the sorry for broken-down artists cleaned-out gamblers temporarily unlucky speculators vieux amis 
old friends as she used to explain apologetically with a shrug of her fine shoulders whether don carlos was one of the old friends too it's hard to say more unlikely things have been heard of in smoking-rooms all i know is that one evening entering incautiously the salon of the little house just after the news of a considerable carlist success had reached the faithful i was seized round the neck and waist and whirled recklessly three times round the room to the crash of upsetting furniture and the humming of a valse tune in a warm contralto voice when released from the dizzy embrace i sat down on the carpet suddenly without affectation in this unpretentious attitude i became aware that j m k b had followed me into the room elegant fatal correct and severe in a white tie and large shirt front in answer to his politely sinister prolonged glance of inquiry i overheard donna rita murmuring with some confusion and annoyance vous êtes bête mon cher voyons cela a qu'une consequence well content in this case to be of no particular consequence i had already about me the elements of some worldly sense rearranging my collar which truth to say ought to have been a round one above a short jacket but was not i observed felicitously that i had come to say good-bye being ready to go off to sea that very night with the tremolino our hostess slightly panting yet and just a shade dishevelled turned tartly upon j m k b desiring to know when he would be ready to go off by the tremolino or in another way in order to join the royal headquarters did he intend she asked ironically to wait for the very eve of the entry into madrid thus by a judicious exercise of tact and asperity we re-established the atmospheric equilibrium of the room long before i left them a little before midnight now tenderly reconciled to walk down to the harbor and hail the tremolino by the usual soft whistle from the edge of the quay it was our signal invariably heard by the ever watchful dominic the padrone he would raise a lantern silently to light my steps along the narrow springy plank of our primitive gangway and so we are going off he would murmur directly my foot touched the deck i was the harbinger of sudden departures but there was nothing in the world sudden enough to take dominic unawares his thick black moustaches curled every morning with hot tongs by the barber at the corner of the quay seemed to hide a perpetual smile but nobody i believe had ever seen the true shape of his lips from the slow imperturbable gravity of that broad-chested man you would think he had never smiled in his life 
In his eyes lurked a look of perfectly remorseless irony, as though he had been provided with an extremely experienced soul, and the slightest distension of his nostrils would give to his bronzed face a look of extraordinary boldness. This was the only play of feature of which he seemed capable, being a southerner of a concentrated, deliberate type. His ebony hair curled slightly on the temples. He may have been forty years old, and he was a great voyager on the inland sea. Astute and ruthless, he could have rivaled in resource the unfortunate son of Laertes and Anticlea. If he did not pit his craft and audacity against the very gods, it is only because the Olympian gods are dead. Certainly no woman could frighten him. A one-eyed giant would not have had the ghost of a chance against Dominic Cervoni of Corsica, not Ithaca, and no king, son of kings, but of very respectable family, authentic caporali, he affirmed. But that is as it may be. The caporali families date back to the twelfth century. For want of more exalted adversaries, Dominic turned his audacity fertile in impious stratagems against the powers of the earth, as represented by the institution of custom-houses, and every mortal belonging thereto, scribes, officers, and guardacostas afloat and ashore. He was the very man for us, this modern and unlawful wanderer with his own legend of loves, dangers, and bloodshed. He told us bits of it sometimes in measured, ironic tones. He spoke Catalonian, the Italian of Corsica and the French of Provence, with the same easy naturalness. Dressed in shore togs, a white starch shirt, black jacket and round hat, as I took him once to see Donna Rita, he was extremely presentable. He could make himself interesting by a tactful and rugged reserve set off by a grim, almost imperceptible playfulness of tone and manner. He had the physical assurance of strong-hearted men. After half an hour's interview in the dining-room, during which they got in touch with each other in an amazing way, Rita told us in her best grand dame manner, Mais il est si parfait, cet homme. He was perfect. On board the Tremolino, wrapped up in a black cabane, the picturesque cloak of Mediterranean seamen, with those massive moustaches and his remorseless eyes set off by the shadow of the deep hood, he looked piratical and monkish and darkly initiated into the most awful mysteries of the sea. End of chapter 42